We're going to be picking up in Mark chapter 11. Last week we took a break to celebrate the Lord's Supper as we came to a a great um, um, part in the Gospel of Mark where there is a a bit of a transition as Mark has been um, bringing us and sharing with us Jesus' approach to Jerusalem. This morning we're going to be looking at that moment when Jesus arrives and the way that he arrives together in, in, uh, in Mark chapter 11, in the first 11 verses. And as we're thinking about it and preparing for that, I had a question for you this morning, a question that as I've been studying the passage of Scripture jumped off of the pages at me. Can you think of a time, and I don't think that it would be very difficult for many of us, can you think of a time that you have been disappointed? A time where you've been disappointed in someone or some experience Maybe you bought uh, tickets for a movie that you had been anticipating and the movie just didn't live up to your expectations. Maybe there was somebody in your life that was supposed to, uh, had made a promise to you and they didn't follow through with that promise. Or maybe you had an experience that you, you had put a lot of money in and it just didn't live up to your, your expectations and anticipations. About this time last year, I was blessed to be able re- to be returning about this time uh, with a group from our church who had gone to Israel. And it was such a great trip, and God blessed in many different ways on that trip. And it was exciting for me because it wasn't my first time. It was my second time going to Israel. So I was able to watch others experience uh, this, this journey through Israel uh, for their first time. But it made me think on my first time in going to Israel. And there were some really exciting points in the trip where I got to, to, to really feel um, this excitement of seeing what Jesus saw and what the disciples saw. As we sailed on the the Sea of Galilee, as we stood on on Mount Carmel and looked over the Jezreel Valley that stretches for hundreds of miles around you, and you get to to see this space where wars were fought throughout uh, the Old Testament and throughout history, and where all of the armies of the world are going to rally to fight against Jesus Christ at the end of times. But then there were other places where I was a little bit disappointed, And those places were summarized by our guide's repeated phrase. One phrase, when I heard this phrase, my heart would just sink. And he would repeatedly say, according to tradition. According to tradition, this is the place where Jesus was crucified. According to tradition, this is the place that he was born. According to tradition, this is the place where he he spoke the the Sermon on the Mount. And time after time after time, there was this this phrase, according to tradition. In other words, we don't really know if this is the spot. It's our best guess. I come to Israel desiring to see the things that Jesus saw, to walk the streets that Jesus walked, and I realized when I got there that that was not the land that Jesus, even the, the way that he saw it. There were 2,000 years of corrosion and erosion at the, at the, the Jordan River as it's continued to run and, and erode away rocks and dig deeper into the earth and the storms and the floods and all kinds of different things have transformed even the landscape. And then what made it all, all, all even a little bit more disappointing is that everywhere we went in one of these places that was according to tradition where something important had happened in the life of Jesus Christ, you know what was there? A big fancy church. It was a beautiful church, but it was a church building after church building after church building. It was a tour of churches. This left me disappointed because it failed to really give me the experience that I wanted. And I'm grateful for the opportunity that I had, but I was disappointed. And we all get disappointed at points in our lives. 
We get disappointed when our experience fails to live up to our expectations. The truth is that while we live in a fallen world with broken and sinful people, we're going to be perpetually disappointed because nobody and nothing is ever going to live up to our expectations. The problem, though, comes when we fail to acknowledge our own sinfulness and choose instead to double down on our expectations as opposed to asking the question, are my expectations what's wrong in the first place? And what we need is a healthy challenge to our expectations. And this is exactly what we get in our passage of Scripture this morning as Jesus shatters our expectations so that he can expose our idolatry and reveal his true identity. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 11 as we read the first 11 verses together. Mark writes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at, tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ways that you constantly, consistently challenge us to see beyond ourselves, beyond our needs, to see beyond our expectations, to reshape our thinking in our hearts that we might better glorify you and live in love with you. So I pray and I ask, Father God, that you would help me in this time to speak your truth as revealed in your word, to expose our sin, that we might trust in Jesus more, that we might depend on the gospel more, that we might grow in our faith and our knowledge and our understanding, grow in our love for you and our love for others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. In this, I think that Mark shows to us the disappointment that kind of comes. It's, it's buried under there. We'll get there in a minute. But if you'll, as we said, is what this text exposes is that we get disappointed when our experience fails to meet our expectations. If you look at the side of your Bible, most likely this passage of Scripture right here is titled The Triumphal Entry. That's what's historically it's been called, and it's typically celebrated on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Passover and the Sunday before Easter. It's one of the few events in Jesus' ministry that shows up in all four of the Gospels. And if we were to look at Matthew or Luke or John's accounts of this event, we would see evidence of the triumphal nature of this parade into Jerusalem. But all of that seems to be missing from Mark's account. 
Mark's account is instead stripped down and it's missing the large crowds and the the whispered wonder of the citizens of Jerusalem and the immediate confrontation of the temple present in the other gospel accounts. His account is really anticlimactic, isn't it? Jesus comes to the end of this road. There's been this parade and this celebration and this, this hoopla around him and the hype build up and he walks into the temple and he looks around and he basically says, all right, boys, it's late, let's go home. And there's this profound pause in all the events that's taking place. And Mark wants to use this to expose in ourselves the ways that that we have false expectations, just as the disciples had false expectations of Jesus Christ. As Jesus repeatedly throughout this passage of Scripture does what, if we stop and think about it, is really shocking and unexpected. The first thing that we see is this this unexpected procession of Jesus Christ and his disciples into Jerusalem. In these verses, we see Jesus exceeding expectations, shocking the people and his followers by presenting himself as the rightful king of creation as he boldly enters into his city and into his temple. Remember what has happened up to this point. What we have studied so far in the Gospel of Mark Jesus has been very intentional throughout the Gospel of Mark up to this point to stay under the radar. And every single time that somebody has attempted to proclaim him as the Messiah, Jesus has silenced them. As he's attempted to to stay in this place where he is able to work under the radar, as he assembles his disciples and he pours into his disciples, training them, raising them up. His actions, however, here are bold and they are clear. As he takes this unexpected action, as he he prepares for this procession into Jerusalem. Remember what he's been doing for the last two or three chapters. He's been teaching his disciples that when he gets to Jerusalem, what's going to happen? He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be killed. So what would you expect for Jesus to do coming into Jerusalem? If it was me, and I knew that there were people there who wanted to kill me, I'd do my best to get in the city as secretly as I possibly could. But not Jesus. Instead, Jesus works together all of the details. He doesn't slink into Jerusalem unnoticed, but instead he comes with a bold declaration of his royalty. Because it's the time for God's fulfillment. The fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. And so it is time for Jesus to finally reveal his true identity. And so he takes these deliberate actions that would be recognized by anyone who is familiar with Old Testament tradition or Jewish tradition or anybody that is familiar with Old Testament prophecy. And he does it by sending these two disciples to get a very specific donkey. A young donkey, the cult of a donkey. And there's a lot of debate around whether or not this is an exercise of Jesus' divinity as he sees things that he's not supposed to be able to see and expects and anticipates the conversation that he shouldn't be able to anticipate or whether or not this is evidence of the fact that, that Jesus had just intentionally prepared and planned for this event. 
But regardless, either, however you fall on either one of those, the point that Mark is wanting to make is the statement that Jesus makes as he enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. The fact that this donkey is unbroken, has never been ridden, has never had a yoke placed upon it, is important. Because in the Old Testament law, the Old Testament commanded that only animals who had never been ridden and never been used for work were worthy of some type of sacred task or holy responsibility to bear something for the Lord. And only unridden animals were worthy to be sat upon by a king. In fact, it was an Old Testament tradition and it was a, a cultural, cultural tradition in that era and in that area that no one was allowed to ride on the king's horse or mule or whatever the king was going to ride except the king himself. And so Jesus is commandeering this donkey for the holy purpose that he has before him, which is to reveal his true identity as the king of all of creation. But why a donkey instead of a horse? Aren't horses cooler than donkeys? Aren't horses more majestic than donkeys? Wouldn't Jesus want to ride in on this majestic stallion? Why would he choose a donkey? We might see a horse as being more majestic, but Jesus isn't here to live up to our standards of majesty or the standards of majesty of the world. Instead, he has come to live up to God's standards of holiness. And he chooses a donkey because he is being obedient to Scripture as he fulfills an Old Testament prophecy regarding the Messiah. Because it's in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 that we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Old Testament prophesied that when the king arrived to his kingdom, when the king arrived to his city, which is Jerusalem, the anointed promised Messiah of God, he would not come mounted on a war horse as victorious and triumphant. He would come humbly mounted on a donkey. There's no other evidence, no other occurrence in any of the Gospels of Jesus riding on anything except the boat. Instead, the picture that we get of Jesus Christ is that he walked everywhere. It was also the tradition in this area that whenever pilgrims who were required to come to Jerusalem for the three major festivals and feasts every year, when pilgrims would come to Jerusalem, it was the expectation that every single able-bodied man walk into Jerusalem. No one rid, rode into Jerusalem unless they were physically incapable of walking. It was a sign of respect. It was a sign of humility. It was a sign of ability. I come to Jerusalem on foot. But Jesus breaks his patterns as well as the traditions of the world to make one very important statement. He is the king. And he is a king like no other king. If you'll remember, Mark is writing at the time that the Romans are persecuting the church. The people who read this for the very first time were Roman citizens, most likely in Rome, who were very familiar with parades and triumphant processions by the Romans. If you've watched any movie that, that documents Roman history, you've probably seen the Roman processions 
And what would happen after a, when a general returned from war, triumphant and victorious? There was a grand procession where the general was mounted on his war horse in full armor, and he was surrounded by the entire company of his army, and they were showing this display of power and force as they declared their victory. That's not how Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He comes to his city mounted on a donkey, displaying his humility and his willingness to serve instead of conquer. And Jesus' bold entrance into Jerusalem provokes from the disciples a celebration. And so we see not only an unexpected procession, we also see an unexpected response. In seeing Jesus prepare to go into Jerusalem, the disciples rally around him and they worship him as the king that they expected him to be. They throw their cloaks not only on the donkey to create an impromptu saddle for Jesus to sit upon, but they also take off their cloaks and they throw them in front of the donkey. And they take palm branches and and other leaves and foliage from the, the side of the road and from wherever the fields that were around them, and they take those and they cut them and they throw them down in front of them. What are they doing? They're following tradition in the declaration of the king. In 2 Kings chapter 9, when Jehu is declared to be king over Israel, all of the people, they they take their cloaks off and they throw them down on the steps, creating a, a red carpet, if you will, for Jehu to walk while they proclaim him to be king. In the 300 years leading up to, to the arrival of Jesus Christ, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, We see the Israelites consistently rising up in rebellion against the Greeks and against the Romans as false messiah after false messiah rose to attempt to free Israel from the reign and the dominion of their oppressors. And in that time, the palm frond became a symbol of military victory for the people of Israel. And so as they are laying their cloaks in the road and as they are laying palm fronds, they are declaring by their action that this is our victorious king come to conquer. They miss Jesus' actions by getting on a donkey. And then they take up the words of Psalm 118 as they sing praises to the king. In the psalm, Psalm 113 through 118 are, no, are what is known as the Hallel Psalms. You've heard the phrase before, hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. And Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 are the hallelujah psalms. They were the songs that Israelites would have sung as they marched to Jerusalem praising the Lord. When they pilgrimaged to Jerusalem for the Passover, for tabernacles, for the feasts, they would sing these songs. The very last one is Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, we see the people crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna originally meant, save us. It was a cry for help. But through the years, it had taken on a bit of a different change. Such that at this time in Jesus' day, Hosanna was less a cry, a pleading for salvation. Would you come save us? As much as it was a praise and a declaration, salvation is coming. We believe salvation is coming. And they're proclaiming this as Jesus is coming. Salvation is coming. Salvation is coming. Hosanna. And it was sounds of praise, much in the same way that you would hear in the church today, a cry of hallelujah or amen. 
Hosanna, salvation is here. Salvation is coming. Remember several years back, it was, it was maybe almost a decade ago, there was that, 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 that carnival cruise ship that got broken down in the, in the ocean and they were stranded on, the, the, on the, 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 the ship for a long period of time? Think about the people that are on that boat. When it breaks down and there they are stranded, what are they doing? Sending out text messages and phone calls and everything else. Would you save us? Send somebody to save us. Please save us. That was the original meaning of Hosanna. But imagine how that cry of salvation changes when they see the rescue boats on the way. And the people see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and they see the rescue coming, and so they cry out, salvation is here. And they speak blessings over Jesus. And the first blessing is there in Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this was a greeting that was used of the pilgrims when they would come into Jerusalem. God bless you. God bless you too, brother. It's so good to see you. Blessed is everybody who's here in the name of the Lord. We're here to worship the Lord, right? And so they're speaking this blessing to one another and to Jesus Christ and over Jesus Christ. But what's not in Psalm 118 is the next blessing. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father, David. That's totally new. Most likely inspired by blind Bartimaeus' declaration of Jesus as the son of David, a messianic title given to him. And so here the people are declaring Jesus to be the conquering king like David. And that's what they wanted. That's what they expected. They wanted a king like David who would come in and wage a bloody and epic war that would kick out the Romans and establish an independent Israel. And here comes Jesus and he gives them hope as he's processing into Jerusalem. Because after all, he's the guy who can raise people from the dead. He's the guy that can calm a storm with a single word. What do you think he can do to the Roman army? And so they're excited. They want to see what's going to happen next. And everything that Jesus had said about what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem, everything that he'd done by choosing a humble donkey, seems to go out the window in the minds of the disciples as they get wrapped up in this parade and this procession into Jerusalem as they take up these militaristic, nationalistic cries of salvation. But that's not what's unexpected, right? We've seen that pattern throughout the book, that they just don't seem to get it. They don't get what Jesus is talking about. So what is the unexpected response that I see here? The unexpected response is from Jesus. Because remember, up to this point, every single time that someone had attempted to declare Jesus to be the Messiah, what had he done? He'd shushed them. He'd rebuked them. He'd stopped it until now. For the first time, Jesus receives the praise that he deserves. He accepts it. He accepts their cries of salvation, their, their, anoint, their, their speaking over him and their declaration that he is the king, even if they don't really understand it yet. They're crying out that he is the king and that salvation is coming, but they clearly don't understand the salvation that he is bringing. And still Jesus accepts it in grace. They're looking for something exciting. They're worshiping Jesus as a king that they want him to be, and they end up missing the king that he actually is. Jesus doesn't do what he want, they want. 
He doesn't march up to the first Roman centurion that he can find and spit in his face or challenge him or anything else. Instead, he marches straight to the temple. And he looks around. And he does what I think is the most shocking thing of all. As we see him come to an unexpected ending. Because after all of this pomp and all of this parade and all of this this hype that has been built around Jesus Christ, verse 11 is pretty shocking. They get into Jerusalem, they go into the temple. When he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He shows up, he looks around, and everybody just seems to disappear. It doesn't say where this crowd went, but at some point between the time that he, he got to Jerusalem and he got into the temple, this massive crowd that's around him that is so excited, they're gone. And Jesus is left alone with the twelve standing in the temple. And he leaves. As the, the climax that Mark builds to is just a giant pause in everything. And that's important in Mark. Our tendency is to just read through this and read over that verse and, and stumble over and go, huh, that's odd, and just go on to the next verse. But when we understand that Mark writes a very fast-paced account of the life of Jesus Christ, in 16 chapters he uses the word immediately 40 different times. So if he is moving at a quick pace, if he stops it must be important. If he changes his pattern, he must be wanting us to see something important. And what we, he wants us to see is that the Messiah of Jesus Christ, standing in the temple, is alone and unsatisfied and surveying the battlefield that is to come. As I was listening to Alistair Begg explain this moment, a picture came to my mind of a scene in uh, The Lord of the Rings, the final movie, The Return of the King. And in that, that movie, it, it all builds to this epic combat between the forces of darkness and, and the men and the, the elves and the dwarves and everybody else that, is, that, is, that comes to, to fight against the, the darkness that is there. But the night before... Gandalf the great wizard and this little hobbit named Mary, they're sitting there on this, this balcony looking out over what is eventually going to be the battlefield filled with blood and guts and gore. And the night before, there is, it's just calm and the breeze is blowing. But still there's this atmosphere that is tense and fearful. Why? Because everybody knows what's about to happen the very next day. And there's this moment of calm before the storm. And I imagine as I read this passage of Scripture, as Jesus is standing there and surveying the temple and expecting what is coming, because he knows the battle that is about to be fought, is standing there anticipating his disciples want a war, and they want the defeat of their enemies. And a war is coming, but it's not the war that they expect. His disciples want him to be crowned as king, and he will, but he's not going to be crowned in the way that they expect. His disciples want bloodshed, and this will happen, but not in the way that they expect. Jesus is instead taking a quiet moment, surveying this battlefield where the greatest battle of all time is going to be fought. He's readying himself to wage war. Not on Rome or any other force of humanity, but the forces of darkness itself, sin and death. And he will get a crown, but it won't be a crown of gold. It'll be a crown of thorns. And there will be blood, 
but it won't be the blood of the Romans. It'll be his blood shed for your sins and for mine. He knows it. And he takes this moment to prepare himself. So what does that mean for us? Throughout this passage, Jesus does the unexpected. In doing so, he exposes the misunderstandings of the disciples. Jesus shatters their expectations and our expectations so that he can expose our idolatry and reveal his identity. That's what happens in this passage of Scripture. We might be disappointed in what's happening. The disciples at this point might have been disappointed in what is happening. But here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. The ministry and the reign of Jesus Christ will always be anticlimactic and disappointed for you if you're building your expectations on who you want him to be instead of who he actually is. In other words, Jesus will never be enough for us as long as we aren't willing to set aside our expectations of who he should be and surrender instead to who he actually is. And when we refuse to accept Christ for who he is, but instead expect him to be who we want him to be, what are we doing? We're worshiping something that isn't actually Jesus, and that is idolatry. And our hearts, the Bible tells us, are idol factories. Constantly creating false gods for us to worship. An idol is anything in our lives that we want so bad that we're willing to sin in order to get it, or we sin when we don't. An idol is anything that we pursue to give us what only Jesus Christ in the gospel can. And we are constantly running after idols. God's greatest commandment in all of the Bible is that we should love him with every fiber of who we are. But when we sin, we are functionally telling the Lord that there is something out there that we believe to be better than him, better than his ways, better than a relationship with him through the gospel of Jesus Christ and through our obedience. When we sin, they're saying, we are saying that there is something right now that is more real to me, that is able to give me what I want more than the gospel and more than a relationship with God. And when we build our lives on such idols, we will be disappointed. Fans are disappointed when their team's uh, first-round pick flops and doesn't give them the performance that they expected. Party members are disappointed when their candidate loses or worse, fails to follow through with the promises that they made. Employees are disappointed when this new job isn't as exciting or freeing or fulfilling as they had hoped. Parents are disappointed when their children fail to apply themselves or behave in the way that they know that they're supposed to. Members are often disappointed when a church's ministries fail to meet their needs or fall short of their standards and expectations. When we want our marriages, when we want this church, 
And as important as community is, it's one of the things we build ourselves upon. One of the the core founding principles of our church is that you're not meant to live this life alone, and so we want to gather in authentic community. But as important as that is, when we expect broken, sinful people, even in a collected body, to give us what only Jesus Christ can give us, which is a sense of purpose and a sense of hope and a sense of belonging, we're worshiping an idol. And we're turning our marriage and we're turning our church or we're turning our family into something that only Jesus is meant to be for us. And our families are constantly going to leave us disappointed. And our church family is going to leave us disappointed. And the job is going to leave us disappointed. But Jesus will never leave you disappointed when you're willing to surrender your expectations and anticipations and receive him as the king that he is and not the king that you want him to be. So I'd ask you today, are you surrendered to Jesus Christ? Not the Jesus Christ that somebody told you he's supposed to be or the Jesus Christ that you expect him to be or want him to be. Are you surrendered to Jesus Christ as he reveals himself to be in Scripture? If not, then I would invite you to come to him this morning and cry out, Hosanna, save me, Lord, from my false expectations. Save me, Lord, from my misunderstandings. Save me, Lord, from my transgressions and my iniquities and my sins. Save me, Lord, and build your kingdom in my heart that I might know you more. Maybe you need to do that for the very first time this morning by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to wash you clean of your sins and to adopt you into his family so that you might receive his grace and his mercy and be able to pray this prayer and walk the life and live the life in love with the Lord that he expects us and desires for us. I want to invite you to repent and believe in Jesus as your Savior today. Is life going to be perfect from this point forward? No, that is a worldly expectation. Are you going to wake up tomorrow and that sin that has dominated you for, all, for the past 15 years going to be gone and have no power in your life? No, that's a false gospel. Jesus loves you exactly where you are, and he loves you too much to leave you where you are. And so every single day from this point forward, as a life of a disciple of Jesus Christ, is that, that battle in our own hearts where we put to death the person that we are in our sin and instead turn to Jesus Christ that we might become who he wants us to be. And who he desires us to be as we forsake our old lives, put off the old self, and put on the new. And Jesus does that day in and day out. For you and for me, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we surrender to him. I ask you again, are you surrendered to Christ today? If not, now is the time to do so. I invite you, if you would take a moment, bow your heads and close your eyes. Go before the Lord as we take a moment for you to just pray privately in your heart that the Holy Spirit would expose to you the idols that you have been worshiping, the ways that you have put false and faulty expectations on what the Lord will do for you, and then just humbly go before the Lord and ask his forgiveness and receive his grace. And I'll close this in prayer in a moment.